Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Jeff Sankoff, who is an emergency physician, longtime triathlete, and Ironman University certified coach. As a doctor of 21 years with a specialty in critical care, he has deep insight into the physiology behind triathlon training and racing, in addition to a well-informed perspective on the current status of race safety in the time of COVID-19. He has completed six Ironman races, including Kona, and more than 50 races at the 70.3 distance, including five world championships. He is a medical contributor to Triathlete Magazine and produces the TriDoc podcast, as well as being owner of TriDoc Coaching. Hey, Dr. Jeff Senkoff, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. You know, if people... Um, look you up through our search at training peaks you got several articles written um, on our on our blog and i think the last one was in march of this year uh, you certainly wrote about um, covid um, gave some guide guidelines around training what, what we can expect to see around racing but things have certainly evolved a lot in the last few months so i think it's a good time to catch up and give some people some good sound advice yeah, it's been quite a ride, uh, both as a physician and, of course, as a triathlete, uh, as so many others, experiencing really the loss and the grief that we're all going through uh, as a result of this pandemic. But as a physician, it's been an incredibly humbling experience. This uh, disease has been something we've been learning about on the fly, and it is uh, really an incredible illness, one that uh, has caught us off guard and that we still know a lot less about than we think we do. Huh. Well, you know, tell us more about your experience in the medical field, um, what your day job is and, uh, you know, kind of, um, where you're kind of gaining all this knowledge. Yeah. So I am an emergency physician at a level one trauma center in Denver, Colorado. We are an outreach facility for three or four different States, uh, that surround us that refer a lot of trauma. Uh, but we're also the urban safety net hospital for, uh, the city of Denver. So we, uh, take care of a lot of the inner city population, the indigent community, as well as minority communities who unfortunately have been really hard hit by this disease. And I actually was uh, one of the physicians who saw one of the first patients to hit the United States, although at the time we didn't, we weren't able to, hmm. to be sure of that. Uh, I saw a, a gentleman who had flown back. He was a pilot uh, for one of the shipping companies, and he had flown back from Wuhan and was manifesting all of the symptoms of uh, the what we now call the coronavirus, novel coronavirus. And... Um, we just had no way of confirming that he had that. But, um, you know, and at the time he was a fairly younger gentleman. He wasn't terribly ill and I, it did not 
presage what was coming. Uh, the spectrum of illness and the severity of illness that we've seen has just been um, really, really incredible. And as I mentioned, uh, humbling just because patients can present looking really well and have the most remarkable chest x-rays and within a very short period of time deteriorate very, very quickly. Wow. Well, we'll dig into more of those details to come. Um, you know, you know, another part of your experience is certain tri triathlon, and that uh, has a lot to do with this conversation we're having today, giving advice to not only triathletes, but any endurance athlete listening. So tell us a little more about your uh, triathlon experience. Yeah, I came to the sport uh, just over, well, about 20 years ago now. I was finishing up my medical training. I was a critical care fellow, found myself very much out of shape, very much out of weight, and uh, very much overweight, and <laughs> had one of those moments that I think a lot of people have. Uh, I call it an Andy Dufresne moment, sort of from the Shawshank Redemption movie, where it was, you know, get busy living or get busy dying, and <laughs> just made a decision that I needed to change something because my family has a history of heart disease and uh, premature death, and uh, discovered triathlon pretty soon after that, and for a long time was pretty content just getting in shape and doing the sport, but um, about uh, eight years ago now, got a lot more serious about it. My kids were a little bit older. I had more time to dedicate to the sport. I'd been in the sport at that point for quite a while, and um, just with uh, applying myself and really with a newfound kind of desire to do well, was able to move up to the you know top five in my age group and qualified for 70.3 world championships many time and Kona one time. Nice. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a journey that I've really enjoyed and it's, it's, I say that triathlon changed my life and it really did. And it's become such a huge part of my life now. It, and, and especially now throughout this period of quarantine and everything else we've been going through, even without races, training has been a huge, huge boon to my mental health. Right. And, and coaching as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, I had been a medical contributor for several triathlon publications for a long time. And uh, it just kind of, you know, seemed like a natural kind of evolution to take what I've learned in the sport and try and help others uh, as, you know, with the perspective of someone who is not only been in the sport for so long and had so many experiences, but also someone with a medical career. And I uh, got certified as a coach uh, two years ago and I've been coaching. This is my second year coaching now and um, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a, a fantastic experience uh, with my athletes. Uh, I know that they appreciate my perspective and I certainly learn from them just as much as I, I hope they're learning from me. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I assume you've had some of these conversations already with with your athletes. So, if you could, thank you for sharing this advice with the world uh, through the Training Peaks Coachcast today. You know, I'd like to start off with some of the more basics of COVID nineteen. Um, I think a lot of these people may have heard, but it's maybe evolved. So, if we kind of level set on a few things and understandings, and some there's still question marks out there. And then from there, we can go, we can go into more of the, um, advice around actual training. But so if we can kind of back up and talk about this virus and what we know of it so far, can it be transferred through service surfaces or just air transmission or how do you, how are we seeing it being, tr uh, transmitted, um, you know, within the population? Yeah. So much of that is still 
up for debate and you know speculative. What we do know is this is a coronavirus, and we know a lot about the family of coronaviruses because there are something like two to three hundred varieties of coronavirus, and each one of them causes, most for the most part, the common cold or, or different varieties of the common cold. And it's only been in the last, I want to say, 20 to 25 years that new novel coronaviruses have emerged that have uh, caused much more serious disease. And the ones that people have heard of are uh, SARS, which was uh, an Asian uh, coronavirus that came out back in 2003 and was responsible for a very high mortality. That was a novel coronavirus. MERS is another one, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, and now this new novel coronavirus, which is uh, known as SARS-2 or, or COVID-19. Um, but they're all coronaviruses and coronaviruses share a certain amount of characteristics. And then this COVID-19 has been remarkably different from other coronaviruses in a lot of important ways. But we can infer certain things about this virus based on what we know about other coronaviruses. And all coronaviruses are spread through what's called a droplet um, infectivity. So when we think about the way that uh, viruses can be spread, the uh, the worst or the most infectious way would be uh, airborne. And that would mean that every time you took a breath, viral particles would be expelled as part of your exhaled air. Droplet infectivity uh, refers to viruses that are spread on or within respiratory droplets. So whenever you exhale, especially if you sneeze or cough, you expel these tiny little droplets of respiratory secretions. And within them and coating them are just, you know, billions, millions and billions of these viral particles. And influenza is spread that way. And almost all coronaviruses are spread that way as well. Now, the thing about respiratory spread by this fashion, dro droplet spread, is that droplets tend not to linger in the air. They tend to fall to the ground because those droplets don't get suspended. And so usually, uh, as long as you're a certain distance away from somebody who's coughing or sneezing, those droplets will fall to the ground and not ha have the infectivity to a person who's more than, you know, six feet away. That's where this whole social distancing thing comes from, is this notion that respiratory droplets won't go further than that. Mm. Um, but um, then there's the question of what happens to those droplets when they hit a surface. And mm -hmm. that has been a cause of great speculation. Uh, early on, there were laboratory studies that showed, well, if I place some coronavirus on a surface and then pick it up and, you know, an hour or two later, it still will be infective. It will infect cells. And so this led to speculation that coronavirus does remain infective if it's on a surface. And again, comparing to other coronaviruses that cause the common cold, you know, there's been studies in the past that show that the most common way that the common cold was spread was through contact. So a person would cough in their hand and then touch something, and then someone immediately after would touch that and then touch their nose. So mm -hmm. we know that coronavirus can spread that way. But the question is, and I think the question you're asking is how long is the virus infective on any specific surface? So if I have coronavirus, I cough on my hand, I touch a desk, I walk away, and you were to come along half an hour later, touch the same desk, are you likely to get infected? And the, and the answer to that is, honestly, we just don't know. We do think, however, based on what we're seeing now that we have you know, eight months of experience that it probably does not last on surfaces for very long at all. So yes, 
if you were to touch a door handle immediately after someone infected with a door handle, you could get infected. But if you were to touch that same door handle, say 15 minutes later, less likely. How much less likely? I can't tell you for sure, but certainly less likely. Okay. So if that door handle is now one is indoors and one is outdoors in direct light, sunlight, does that might that make a difference? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an excellent question. We're seeing tremendous variabilities in the infectivity rates indoors versus outdoors. Uh, so outdoor infectivity seems to be incredibly low compared to indoors. But whether or not that has anything to do with surfaces is unclear. Um, it, it stands to reason that outdoor surfaces are going to be much safer than indoor surfaces. But again, there's no real great data on this. And then not just droplets, but but through your breath being outdoors, obviously sunlight, but now you have uh, you know, wind, um, greater airflow. That I've heard that reduces risk as well. Is that a, a, yeah. a, a good yes. statement? So the, the things that seem to play into outdoor transmission being so low are, as you said, sunlight and wind. Uh, no question, airflow is the absolute number one uh, predictor. And that's why indoor transmission restaurants and bars are so dangerous because it's, uh, you know, it's restricted airflow and the air tends to be recirculated. It's really dangerous in those small spaces. But outdoors, you have continual air movement. Uh, you also have changes in humidity and you have direct uh, ultraviolet light from the sun. So all of those things together just seem to make outdoor transmission of this virus much, much less. Okay. Now, what about the actual amount of exposure? Is it equal no matter how much? If it, if it hits you, you breathe it in, you automatically, or does it matter the amount that you might breathe in? Or You absolutely have to be exposed to a certain amount. So, I mean, while theoretically one viral particle would be enough to cause an infection, Practically, that just is not the case. Uh, nobody knows exactly how many viral particles you have to get, you know, that you have to get on the you know, susceptible membranes in the respiratory system to actually get infected. But it, it's it's going to be greater than one and probably less than several thousand. But um, when you consider how tiny these viral particles are, uh, you know, a pinhead can contain millions of them. So it, it doesn't require... Uh, a very large volume, but the number of viral particles uh, within that volume can be very high. But again, that diminishes with distance from the infected person. Right. Um, so if we if we now start to dig in and look at age, you know, the spectrum of you know kids up to obviously aging adults. Um, you know, obviously it it's affected the older um, generation more. Um, they you know, have higher risk of actual death, I'd assume. Um, but have we seen that migrate to younger ages through the last three, four months? Well, there's a number of things that uh, predict mortality. Age is by far the strongest association, and that's the one that everybody knows about. Um, if uh, you're greater than 70 years old, your likelihood of succumbing to this disease is as high as 50%. Um, if you're younger than 20 years old, uh, your likelihood of dying from the disease is quite low, less than 1%. So the, definitely age is a very important predictor of outcomes. However, 
amongst those who survive, this is not a benign illness. Uh, consider, for example, people in the 40 to 50 range. They have a very low mortality rate. It's only about 5 to 7% of people. And already, 5 to 7% is very right. high. But, yeah. you know, 5 to 7% will die. But as many as 20 to 25% will require hospitalization. And in that group, about 20% of those are going to end up in the intensive care unit. So these are really really sick people. And when they recover from the illness, they're often left with very profound uh, morbidity afterwards. This disease causes terrible vascular problems. It causes strokes. It causes heart problems. They can be left with terrible respiratory illness. So yeah, maybe they didn't die, but they're left with really, really bad uh, after effects from this disease. And now, sorry, it, there are other things that predict uh, outcomes as well. Um, so while children, on the, for the most part, are not likely to die, there are going to be groups of children who are. So any child who has known uh, cancer or known uh, associated comorbid illnesses, such as diabetes uh, or any kind of pre-existing heart conditions, and we see those congenital heart conditions in kids, th that does predict poorer outcomes. Huh. And the after effects of, of the infection, does that, that's independent of age as well? That we don't know, but okay. it, that, that does appear to be independent of age. Now, right now, because the number of survivors is higher in younger people, we're seeing that the after effects of illness are skewing to younger people. Does that make sense? Because if you have more people who survive the illness who are younger, you're going to have, you're going to see more frequency okay. of those after effects in younger people. But yeah, so my, my point is young people still get these oh, after absolutely. effects. Absolutely. So brushing it off and say, saying, I don't really care because I'm in college doesn't really... <laughs> Right. Do and, us any I mean, good. and I don't want to, you know, people forget young people are dying from this. Young people right. are ending up in intensive care on ventilators for a very long time. So while it may be less likely that they're going to die, it's not zero. And it's certainly, uh, uh, it's certainly significantly higher rates than with the flu, which right. is, you know, the, the, what everybody seems to like to compare this to. How about treatments and how has that evolved? Yeah, unfortunately, Viruses are incredibly difficult to treat, um, and for a number of reasons. Um, viruses are inert, and that is to say they, they are not alive on their own. So bacteria are distinguishable from viruses in that bacteria are living organisms. They multiply on their own. They don't require a human host. Uh, bacteria, which cause things like pneumonia, for example, when bacteria get into the lungs, the way we treat them is we give antibiotics and those antibiotics interfere with the bacterial life cycle without interfering with any of our mammalian cell life cycles. So the antibiotics are very specific to the bacteria themselves. Now, because viruses aren't alive on their own, what viruses have done is they get into a cell and they just harness our own cells machinery to replicate themselves. As a result of that, any drug that would work against a virus necessarily has to work against our own cells to stop the reproduction of the viral particles. So it's really, really hard to interfere with viral replication. So instead, drugs that work against viruses have to operate against things that are very specific to the virus itself. So for example, coronavirus has this spike protein, which latches on to a specific receptor on the surface of cells, and that's how it gets in. Uh, 
And so a lot of work has been, a lot of focus has been on trying to identify a drug that can block that spike protein. But it's really mm -hmm. hard because, as I said, there's already a receptor on human cells for that protein. Well, if you block that spike protein, then you're probably going to block whatever that receptor is needed for in the first place, and therefore you're going to interfere with normal cellular function. Mm -hmm. um, now, there is one drug that's come out. It's called remdesivir. It came out to a lot of hype a few months ago. Um, it uh, was originally designed for something completely different. When it didn't work for that, it was kind of dusted off and tried out for COVID. Um, you know, it was one of these things where we had nothing. And when remdesivir seemed to show a tiny glimmer of hope, everybody kind of latched onto it like, this is it, we got something. The reality is, is that remdesivir is really not that big of a deal. It um, Its effects are very specific to a very small subset of patients with this disease and doesn't really change mortality. It may change morbidity for some patients. So right now, we really don't have any specific therapy for this drug. What we have learned, however, is we have learned how to treat these patients with our conventional therapy. So for example, we used to intubate these patients right away. And now we try very hard not to because we've learned that putting these patients on mechanical ventilation can actually in many cases be harmful. So we try mm -hmm. as best we can to keep these patients off the ventilator as long as possible and ventilate them only at the last instance uh, when they absolutely must be. Um, so it's, it, we've really learned how to manage these patients with conventional therapies as opposed to having any new therapies. Um, and then any progress around the vaccine side of things? What have you been hearing lately? Well, there's a lot of... A lot of hope around that because that's going to be, honestly, probably the only way we're ever going to see this go away. Um, and there's some, there's several hundred different candidates out there. Um, one of the issues with a vaccine for this virus is that there's never really been an effective virus against coronaviruses before. Uh, now, they did have a potential candidate for SARS. That was the Asian virus from about 20 years ago. And because SARS just kind of went away, they never really pursued that uh, vaccine all the way through to clinical trials. But they were able to bring that one back because this new uh, coronavirus is pretty similar to SARS in a lot of ways. So that gave them a head start. And that's actually one of the virus uh, vaccine candidates that's sort of the furthest ahead and is actually in clinical trials right now in England. Moderna, which is a, a company here in the United States, has a candidate as well that uh, just got approval to go into the next stage of clinical trials and will be testing thousands of patients across the country um, with uh, their uh, next step. So I'm optimistic that we will get a vaccine for this. The question is always when. Um, vaccine research is just one of these things that takes time. You have to inoculate a lot of people to show that it actually works and more importantly, to show that it's safe. Right. So the soonest might be... I mean, they've been on a really accelerated timeline and because this obviously is such a huge problem for the entire world. Uh, you know, people are saying optimistically that uh, by the beginning of 2021, we could actually see a successful vaccine. That would be the fastest ever 
um, from beginning to end of uh, vaccine trials. Right. As long as they can show that the vaccine is safe, I would be willing to accept that. But I, that's the key is they have to show that they've tried it on enough patients to not have significant side effects. And uh, that's going to be the crux of the matter. Got it. And now I, I've been hearing recently about how antibodies actually don't last all that long and may not like if you, if you did have um, COVID-19, got the antibodies early on, it, it felt like, oh, great, I'm protected. Um, and now some of the research is showing that's, that's not the case. Yeah, we kind of know that from other coronaviruses. Like when you get a cold, um, you can be reinfected by the same coronavirus, usually about six months later. And that's just because the immune response to the coronavirus is not one of those that our body you know, remembers. Um, mm. Other mm. kinds of viruses, influenza viruses, we have an excellent immune response to it and we actually retain this, uh, this immune memory. And if you get re-exposed, you, your response is very, very strong and you tend not to get reinfected. With coronavirus, it tends not to be quite as good. And nobody really understands why that is, but it unfortunately is just uh, the way it is. Um, so we don't know for sure. Um, it, again, it's too early. We've tested a lot of people. We can see who has antibodies, but we're still following them to see if they get uh, re-exposed and if they get reinfected. If they do get reinfected, there's some hope that they will not be as at as much risk. But again, it's going to be one of those things where time will tell. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's get into the day-to-day -day application here. Um, advice. You know, people are still training. They're wanting to race. They can't race, except virtually. Um, but let's let's dig into swim, bike, run. You know, and and some advice around training for athletes. So if we look at the run, um, you know, certainly we go out on the trails outside. Sounds like you know a first good step um, instead of in a health club on a treadmill, which health clubs for the most part are closed. But that's not the case around. The, you know, the entire world or in the United States, there are health clubs open, I believe. Yeah. Gyms have started to open. They're opening with, uh, reduced capacity, but they are still open. I, I haven't gone to my own. Um, I, I don't think it's particularly safe. I think that, uh, training indoors by yourself is fine. Training in a place where there's going to be other people around, you know, I have, I, I, <laughs> I, I, there's no great science to this. This is just a gestalt. Um, yeah. You know, they, I know that they're socially distancing things like treadmills. So like, you know, they won't have people on treadmills next to each other. They'll space them out. And that, that might be just fine. Um, my personal feeling is, is I can run outside where I know my risk is significantly less. Um, I know that a lot of people like to do weights and a lot of people like to, you know, do strength work at a gym because they don't have any, any options or alternatives. And I don't really have any great advice for that. I think that it's a risk. I think that if you practice great hand hygiene and your gym is, is washing things down continuously, you can mitigate that risk, but you're never going to be able to reduce it to zero. I would definitely say wear a mask because right. that's going to help. And if I'm outside on a trail and I am more than six feet away from somebody, do I need that mask on? Can I be okay kind of having it drop down below my chin and only pull it up when I am going to get within six feet? 
Yeah, this is a question I get asked a lot. <laughs> um, and this goes back to a couple of studies that came out back in February in Belgian sports yeah, medicine saw. journals that looked about computer modeling of respiratory secretions of runners and bikers. And they got a lot of press at the time. And the authors of those two papers were mortified when they saw how their computer modeling was being used to, you know, uh, to, to extrapolate to real world scenarios. And, and we have to be really careful with that because computer models are great, but they're not reality. And um, I, I think, you know, I, I had a conversation with uh, one of my infectious disease colleagues on my own podcast where we discussed this very topic. And, and you know, it, it comes down to this. So you mentioned before you asked a question about how many viral particles you need to be exposed to. And, and that's, that's really the crux of this. To be infected, it requires both exposure, it requires time, and it requires, you know, v v viral load. As you're running along and you're passing by people, you simply do not have the time or the exposure to get the sufficient viral load to be infected, uh, especially when you're outdoors, there's wind and all the other things going on. Um, if you want to be super safe and you want to run with a mask on, I would never tell you not to because that I think that's that's totally fine. But I, I do think that it's probably not necessary. Um, I, I just go back to my own real world experience with coronaviruses of other types. I have never once caught a cold just going out for a run or a bike ride. Uh, and I, I, I just think that COVID-19 is probably the same way. And if now, however, I'm in a group, let's say I'm in a four person running group, and I'm behind two or three of them, that exposure and time can certainly go up. Yeah, I because think you I, are now be in their draft, you know. Absolutely. Three, everything I say is everything I'm talking about is when you're running on your own, maybe if right. you're running with one other person side by side. But as soon as you get into a group dynamic, then yes, I agree. That's a whole different situation. If I was going to be riding in a group, I would wear a buff. If I was going to be running with more than you know one person, I would wear some kind of mask. Right, right. So obviously that's the same with cycling, um, even maybe more so because the, t the trail of that draft is, is longer because of the speeds of cycling. Again, that goes back to that computer modeling, and we don't know how much of that turns into reality just because of crosswinds and stuff like that. I, I think that you know, if you're riding on your own, you're fine. If you're going to ride with somebody else and, and you're not going to be riding side by side, if you want to be safest, yes, you should wear a buff. Uh, if, um, you know, I, I, I think it's probably okay not to, but again, I can't say a hundred percent. And therefore I think to be safest, uh, then yes, wear a buff. If you're going to ride with someone else personally, I'm just riding by myself all the time or else I'm riding gravel where I can ride side by side. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I've been doing as well. And, and if we talk about swimming now, what about water? Uh, does that reduce, um, you know, the, the risk? So there's no evidence at all that this virus is transmitted or survives in water. So swimming itself is fine. Uh, the issue with swimming is where are you swimming? If you're swimming in an indoor pool, I would think that that's not a great idea because again, you're indoors. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're swimming in an outdoor pool, probably fine. But the question is, is how did you get to that pool? I know for mm -hmm. myself, my pool is at my gym, which means I have to walk through the gym. There's a lot of surfaces I have to come in touch with, uh, into contact with. There's, um, 
you know, there's the locker room, there's just a endless amounts of sort of places where I could get in touch with someone who's infected. And then if I'm in the pool, I would hope that they're only allowing one person per lane. Uh, mm-hmm. If that's the case, then I think outdoor swimming is going to be fine. The best of all worlds is going to be open water swimming. Right. With no locker room. Correct. No locker room. Uh, just, you know, just go dress to swim, haul on your wetsuit on the beach, jump in, do your swim, come out, get the wetsuit off, dry off. Don't change. Just go home, change at home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and how about immune system? You know, obviously during these, these stay at home times, people working from home, um, there's the Everesting challenges. There's the 24 hour, you're just really pushing the limits. A lot of people are, or at least in the social media, you see a lot of this pushing the limits. And I would just f- seem like that's not a great idea because that would compromise your immune system, pop- possibly make you more susceptible. So there's a lot of research on this, and I've covered it a few times because this is another one of those questions I get asked a lot. Exercise and training on the whole is on is has been shown repeatedly to actually strengthen your immune system. Now, the question mm-hmm. becomes what you're pointing at, which is like pushing the limits. And we know that when you do something like an Ironman, when you are at a very high level of exertion for a very prolonged period of time, that, it is true, seems to have a transient immunosuppression effect, specifically as it relates to respiratory viruses. But that is really specific to those very long, high exertion type of efforts. It's not specific to, say, pushing yourself hard every day for a week. It's really specific to a one day, sort mm-hmm. of like 10 hours really hard, or mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be 10 hours, but it could be, you know, it's, it's those very high, very high um, intensity, long efforts that can suppress the immune system transiently. On the whole, I haven't really modified my own training and I haven't modified that of my athletes because I'm not sending them on any of these eight to 10 hour days. Mm-hmm. Um, I have them doing intense, uh, training sessions, but they're doing so for no more than two hours right now. Um, maybe th- I think I might've had somebody do three hours once because there was an Ironman still on the calendar, but I, I just, you know, especially during quarantine where, and during lockdowns anyways, where you were doing all your training indoors or you were doing all your training without really having much interaction with anybody, then, it's even less of an issue because again, if your immune, if your immune system is slightly depressed, but you're not exposed to anybody, then it doesn't matter. Um, cause you have to be exposed to something in order to catch it. So I really don't think it's that much of a, I think it's overblown as a significant concern. I think that uh-huh. as long as you're training at, you know, a reasonable level, you're not overdoing it in terms of significantly long efforts at significantly high intensity. You don't need to worry about this. Yeah. Okay. So now if we jump over to the racing side of things, um, USA Triathlon put out a three-phased return to racing kind of guidelines. Um, And I believe we're obviously still in this phase one, which is not allowing racing. I can't remember all the details of it, but do you know what I'm referring to? I do. I actually reviewed them uh, on the coach's blog. Okay. Yeah. And so that's correct, right? We're we're in phase one. What might get us out of phase one and into phase two? Or what what does phase two allow? What does phase three allow? 
So, I mean, the first question is really the most important one, and that's going to be a significant decrease in infections. And and right. I just don't see that happening. I mean, we're, we, we don't have a great coordinated response in this country to, to help infections go down. So, unfortunately, as long as the infection rate continues to rise, as long as we continue to see uh, across the country that, you know, hospitals are being overwhelmed, we're not going to be able to have mass gatherings, even gatherings of 100 to 200 people. Um, if we get to a point where they've gotten in Europe and in Australia, New Zealand and Canada, where numbers have come precipitously downward and they're having just tiny numbers of infections, then you can start considering moving to a phase two. Uh, phase two is where they start encouraging group activities. It's where they start saying that, uh, you know, we can start thinking about having camps uh, phase three is when they actually start talking about having races again. But I think we are a long way from that. I do not think you're going to see any races for the remainder of 2020. Um, you, except for maybe small local things, but certainly nothing big. Uh, and then in 2021, we can hope if there's a vaccine or if uh, we really get on top of this. And I, I worry what the fall is going to bring. But Optimistically, if we can get on top of this, then maybe we can start thinking about phase three coming to pass in uh, 2021 at some point. But right now, uh, phase two is a bit of a dream. Right. And so, you know, we might, you said we might have small local, that meaning wave starts, like how might that even happen? If, if you're allowed to have 200 people in a race, yeah, you, you know, I honestly don't know. I mean, so I participated in a gravel bike race, which was exceptionally well done. I was very impressed. What, um, and how long ago was that? That was like three weeks ago. And uh, I was very, very impressed. They, uh, they limited it to uh, 150 people. Uh, I think actually, yeah, no, they limited it to a hundred people and I think they had about 75 and, uh, we were mandated to wear masks at the start. We had to socially distance. They had a very big open space uh, for us. Uh, there was no mass start. It was, uh, uh, they, instead of having like uh, everybody roll out together, they rolled us out one or, you know, in small groups and in a very wide sort of area. And then uh, they, you had to wear your mask for the first couple of miles until we got all spread out. And then you could drop your mask and then you had to get your mask back on when you got back to the finish. There was, uh, they did have some uh, food at the end, but you had to take the food with you and, and go. And there was no awards or anything like that. So it was really well done. I was very impressed. Uh, it was a gravel ride. So obviously didn't need a whole lot of support, didn't need a whole lot of stuff going on. And uh, for the organizers, you know, they didn't have to think about things like a swim and a run course. So uh, in that sense, much easier for them to do. Uh, for triathlon, I honestly don't know. I mean, it, I think duathlons are going to be a lot easier to do than triathlons, uh, simply because it's easier to keep people spaced out. It's easier to send people off on the course uh, on a time trial type start. Um, swims are going to be problematic just because people tend to congregate around the swim start and you really just can't have that. Uh, I have read of some small races going off in uh, some parts of the country, uh, small local events with very small fields. Pictures I've seen uh, look like transitions were really nicely you know, thinned out. Uh, but I did not see how they managed the swim start. But, you know, once people get in the water, it's fine because then things tend to spread out on their own and uh, they tend to stay fairly spread out through the rest of the race. 
Yeah, I could see a, a almost a time trial, you know, start at the swim one by one, um, not massed gathering. So possibly there, but certainly on the very small size. Um, yeah, and in my conversation, I've talked to a couple of local race directors here in town. And, you know, the, the issue for them is, you know, volunteers on the water, they got to get permitting, they have to have, you know, enough people out on the course to watch traffic. And you know, it, there's just a certain number of participants they need to make it viable. And right. uh, the question is, is what's that magic number? And are they going to be able to get it for a gravel race? It's super easy. You don't need anybody. You don't need anybody monitoring traffic. You really, they didn't need much. So I, I think once you start talking about triathlons, it starts getting more complicated. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, and lastly here, you know, with your, with your coaching, how are you helping your athletes through this, you know, without races on the calendar? Um, how are you setting goals for them or what's, where's their motivation coming from? You know, we've talked a lot about that and I think it's been, listen, I'm an athlete too. So I've gone through exactly what I think they've gone through and what everybody else is going through. Um, you know, as my races started falling off the calendar, I had my own struggles with motivation and my own struggles with, uh, why am I putting in these hard efforts and everything else? And I, I came to the realization, you know, first that I don't just train to race. Uh, training for me has become so much more a part of my life, and it's so important to me for so many other reasons. Uh, as I mentioned before, it helps with my mental health, especially with all the stress I deal with at work. But also, I'm realizing that I can get so much more out of my training now by exploring different things. Like, I, I was never a huge gravel rider, and this year I'm riding gravel like a lot more and enjoying it. I've gotten my mountain bike out and I'm doing a bit of that. And so I've explored those things with my athletes and I'm always checking in to make sure they still feel, you know, motivated to keep themselves going. And we look for alternative goals. So, you know, maybe, maybe the goal is to become a better bike climber. Maybe the goal is to improve their, their, their best mile running. Uh, but we can always find something to keep them encouraged. And, and the feedback and the response that I've received from my athlete is that having the training scheduled for them and having the training and seeing their fitness continually build has been something that has just given them uh, a sense of positiveness that otherwise does not exist right now. And so they've been really, really grateful for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm much the same way. I've, I've certainly done a lot more gravel I've always wanted to do a four-day bike um, packing trip, which I actually did do uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I also think, you know, being an athlete isn't, you know, three months a year, you know? Right. You can be an athlete 12 months a year. You, you progress year to year. And if you think like these Olympians, these Olympians now have this whole entire year to become better and they're focused a year out from now. So can we have that Olympic Olympian mentality that we can be stronger and better next year. Yeah, and one of the things that I've really found is uh, watching my CTL on Training Peaks, mm, you know, and right. comparing it to previous years where, you know, I'd have several races throughout the summer and I would see the CTL climb, 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 and then drop as I tapered and then, you know, spike for the race, but then drop a little bit as I recovered and then start to climb again. Whereas this year, it's just been a consistent climb. You know, it's yeah. just, you know, so my fitness is actually, despite the fact, you know, I would have been right now ramping up towards Ironman Canada. So my hours would have been significantly more than what I'm putting in, but my fitness is actually not that far off, I think, from what it would have been just yeah. because I've been consistent. Yeah. 
That's a great point. I'm I'm the same. I'm about, I'm about 20 points higher now this uh, today versus the same day last year. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jeff Sankoff. Thank you so much. I. I've learned a lot. I hope all the listeners have. Um, unfortunately, this is not going away tomorrow. Hopefully, we don't have to revisit this. Um, we might have you on again, though, in the future. Well, it's really been my pleasure. Uh, I, you know, I'm always available to anybody out there who uh, has questions. They can reach me through the website. And uh, yeah, I know it's tough times for everybody. And uh, like you said, I hope uh, I hope we can be talking about this in the past tense sooner than later. Yeah. And what was your podcast link again? So it's the uh, TriDoc podcast, and that is on uh, all of the different platforms. Uh, it's hosted on Captivate, but you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, the works. Super. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Drew. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge.